Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. Brendan McGuire. Thanks, guys. Thank you all for your, your wonderful welcome back uh, last week. I can't tell you guys how much it, it meant to me to be welcomed back by so many people. It's amazing to be back in your midst again after having gone through so much over the past year. And it means so much to me to, to experience your love and, and your appreciation and your prayers. And uh, thanks to uh, Deacon Sabatino again for having me back. So, part two tonight of... The Legend of St. James and the History of Catholic Spain. So for those of you who missed part one, you can find it on the internet. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> if you missed part one, it is on the internet. But the key point from part one that you kind of need to have kicking around in the back of your head is the fact that the, the legend of St. James becomes an integral part of the psyche and the soul of Catholic Spain in the high Middle Ages. In the 12th century, when the crusading spirit comes to predominate, in Catholic Spain, and it comes to, the crusading spirit comes to have a tremendously transformative influence over the, the politics of the Iberian Peninsula in the 12th century. It's the cult of St. James, devotion to St. James, uh, that is a key religious component of that crusading psyche as it existed in its unique form in the Iberian Peninsula. Right? And we discussed last time why it is that, uh, or at least how it was, Right, that the cult of St. James came to be particularly associated with Spain, despite the fact that the records of the early church offer us no particular evidence that St. James ever preached in Spain. Uh, everyone agrees that he died in Jerusalem in the year 44. Nevertheless, you have this, this legend that everyone in the Middle Ages believed, right, which was that St. James not only preached in Spain during his lifetime, but that after his death in Jerusalem, his body was miraculously transported back to Spain, where it lay hidden, where it lay hidden for 800 years until it was rediscovered in the mountains of the Asturias, at which point the shrine that was built over St. James's relics became the greatest pilgrimage site in Western Europe. Right? With the exception of Rome itself, the greatest pilgrimage site in Western Europe was the shrine of St. James at Compostela in the Asturias. So if you kind of have that kicking around in, in the back of your mind, let's talk about part two. Let's talk about uh, the transformation of the Iberian Peninsula. Look at it this way. The, the, the puzzle for us is how it is that the Christian kingdoms that formed in the northern extremity of the Iberian Peninsula in the wake of the Islamic conquest, that those tiny, embattled, divided Christian kingdoms came somehow to reconquer the Iberian Peninsula from Islam. It's a tremendous historical puzzle. These kingdoms in the 8th and 9th century, they were tiny. They were divided against each other. They were at war within themselves. They were at war with one another and with the Franks as often, or in fact, to be quite correct, more often than they were ever at war with Islam. In fact, more often than not, these small Christian kingdoms were paying tribute to the Umayyad Emirate in the ninth century. All right? So the, the situation that exists in the eighth and ninth centuries is one where the Umayyad Islamic state, with its capital at Cordova, 
is actually kind of the supreme political entity in the Iberian Peninsula. The Christian kingdoms that exist in the north are very small and very divided. Now, there's an interesting paradigm that exists, and it, it applies throughout the whole history of interaction between Christianity and Islam. And it applies pretty much everywhere in geographic terms and chronological terms. And that is a, a paradigm of unity versus disunity. Wherever you see Christian and Islamic civilizations struggling with one another, where, wherever you find the boundaries between Christian and Islamic civilization being contested by competing Christian and Islamic powers, there's always a paradigm of unity versus disunity. And what I mean by that is, to put it quite simply, whichever side is more unified has the upper hand. This is true certainly during the era of the Islamic conquests. This is true during the era of the Crusades in Palestine. And it goes back and forth, right? Sometimes, as is the case during the First Crusade, the Christians enjoy more unity, and the Islamic world is disunified. Sometimes, as is the case during the Second Crusade, right, the Islamic world is more unified than the Christians. And so they have the upper hand, right? And so we see this paradigm of unity versus disunity applying also in the Iberian Peninsula. We see the same phenomenon in Spain, where whenever the Islamic world is politically unified, they have the upper hand, particularly when their unity is coupled with the disunity and infighting of the tiny Christian principalities in the north. But when Islamic unity is compromised, we see the tables turn. When Islamic unity is compromised, we see the Christian kingdoms able to gain the upper hand. And it's interesting because what we're going to see is that the Islamic unity that was forged by the Umayyads in the middle of the 8th century and strengthened over the subsequent 250 years or so was actually shattered in the early 11th century. It was shattered with the dissolution of the Umayyad state in 1031. And after that, from that point on, for the whole subsequent history of Islamic Spain, Islamic unity is much harder to come by. And since Islamic unity is much harder to come by, we see the Christian states gaining an advantage. And their advantage is fueled in part by the fact that, coincidentally, Christian unity definitely grows, right? And Christian unity is, is finally manifested in the period of Islamic disunity. Now, this Christian unity that we see in Spain which we don't really perceive until late in the 11th or early in the 12th century, and it comes into full flower much later on in the 13th century, this Christian unity was fueled and cemented by the crusading spirit and, in a particular way, by the cult of St. James. Okay, so let's take a look at the history of this and how this works. In the first place, just to kind of clarify a certain thing or related to terminology, I'm going to throw around a lot of Spanish and Arabic names, and people get confused because there's this flurry of names. Just to make things easier for people, don't get too caught up in the names. Don't get too anxious if you're not really able to keep track of all the names. You know, but just to, to clarify something, in regard to the names of Christian kingdoms, there's something that has to be explained. Right? And that is, there's basically kind of a core of three Christian kingdoms that are formed in the early period of the Reconquista. And that is the kingdom of the Asturias, number one, the kingdom of Pamplona, which is number two, and then number three are the Frankish fiefs in northeastern Spain that become the crown of Aragon. So you'll see reference made to certain kingdoms. The Asturias, Pamplona, and Aragon are kind of the core seedling states that emerge in the 9th and 10th and 11th centuries, right? Now, what makes this kind of confusing, right, is that all bets are off in terms of names. 
Because take, for example, the example of the, the Asturias. The kingdom of the Asturias changes its name in 924, and it becomes known as the kingdom of Leon. Later on in the 11th century, after the conquest of the plains of Castile, we see the kingdom of Leon more often than not known as the kingdom of Castile. It's the same thing. It starts out as the kingdom of the Asturias. It becomes the kingdom of Leon. Later on, it becomes the kingdom of Castile. Now, that in and of itself would be easy to follow if it weren't for the fact that the kings of this principality often divide it amongst their sons when they die. This drives people crazy. It was common among barbarian kings in medieval Europe. The kings of Christian Spain are no exception. And so oftentimes, uh, you'll have a king of Leon, quote-unquote, who dies, and one of his sons becomes the king of the Asturias, one of his sons becomes the king of Leon, one of his sons becomes the king of Castile, one of his sons becomes the king of Galicia, right? And it drives you crazy, because you say to yourself, ah, when did Galicia become a kingdom, right? But you just have to remember, in the Middle Ages, they didn't have nation-states. They didn't think of nations and states as being coterminous in the way that modern people do. So don't let it drive you crazy. If I make reference to the kingdom of the Asturias, and then five minutes later we're talking about the kingdom of Leon or Galicia or Castile, it's all the same thing. Just think of it as all the same thing, okay? <laughs> anyway, of all of these seedling kingdoms that came into existence in the wake of the Islamic conquest, the kingdom of the Asturias was the oldest, and it was the one that had the greatest capacity for expansion because of its geographical location and because of its topography. Remember, the kingdom of the Asturias was headquartered at first in the Picos de Europa, in the mountains. This was territory that the Umayyads never conquered. Heck, this was territory that the Romans had trouble conquering, simply because of the difficulty of the terrain. So it was a great place to found a, a kingdom in resistance to Umayyad power. Now, it's from the kingdom of, of the Asturias that we witness the first Christian expansion, and it's from the Asturias that we see the earliest strategies of Reconquista being deployed. The earliest strategies of Reconquista, we really witnessed them at first during the reign of Alfonso II. Alfonso II was the king of the Asturias in the early 9th century. He died in 842. Alfonso II did several things. In the first place, he liked to engage in border raids raids into Islamic territory. He raided Lisbon, for example, which was a great Islamic city in the ninth century. He raided Coimbra. He raided Zamora, right? He, he loved raiding as deep as he could into Islamic territory. What was the purpose of these raids? It wasn't an attempt to reconquer vast tracts of territory, right? That was impossible. Remember, Alfonso II is the king of a relatively weak principality. Alfonso II was paying taxes to the emir of Cordova, right? He's paying taxes to the Umayyad ruler all the time. And so he, he's in a subordinate position. Alfonso II is basically a client king of the Islamic emir of Spain, right? So he, he's not really attempting Reconquista as we might imagine it, right? What is he attempting to do? He, he's simply attempting to kind of make his life easier to basically say to the Umayyads, I can make your life difficult if you make my life difficult, but if you make my life easy, I'll make your life easy, right? That's basically the strategy behind those raids, right? A kind of um, side effect of the raids, however, demographically speaking, is the depopulation of the border zone between the Umayyad Emirate and the Kingdom of the Asturias. Now, this is a very, very important step because as the Muslims kind of pull their population back from the borderland of the Kingdom of the Asturias, nobody likes being raided by barbarians. 
And that's basically what the Christian kings were doing. That's basically what Alfonso II was doing. He was conducting barbarian-style raids on Umayyad Spain. Very, very effective barbarian raids. So you see the population of the Duero River Valley kind of disappears in the reign of Alfonso II. And then guess who moves in? People from the kingdom of the Asturias, right? People come out of the mountains and they settle in the river valley of the Duero, right? This becomes known as the repoblacion, right? The repopulation of the Duero Valley. Now there was a particular strategy, a self-conscious strategy that was employed in the 9th and 10th centuries by the Christian kings of the Asturias. The strategy was called presura. Presura, which it means what it sounds like it means. It means pressure, right? You put demographic pressure on the borderland by providing an incentive for peasants to move into the no man's land and settle there. Now, the way the, the presura system worked in the 9th and 10th centuries was very, very simple. Basically, peasants who were subject to the feudal system in the kingdom of the Asturias were given the ability to move into this border territory, to move into the no man's land, and become a lot freer. They were able to have land of their own as long as they could work it and defend it. And so you have the creation of relatively militarized peasant population, a relatively militarized peasant agricultural population in the Duero River Valley, right, as a direct result of this presura system. A peasant who's living the hard life in relatively unfertile territory, subject to some lord or something like that in the northern portion of the Asturias, he could move down towards the Duero River, which was depopulated. He could have land of his own. He could have a lot more freedom. He could farm it himself and defend it himself and be free from some of the constraints of the feudal system. Now, this strategy expands in the 10th and 11th century, it expands to uh, the granting of charters that gave specific local rights to communities within the kingdom of the Asturias. Those charters, those declarations of local rights, were called fueros. Now, fueros become very, very important in the subsequent history of Spain. Those local rights, those charters that grant independence, especially to cities and towns, within the kingdom of the Asturias, they become something very dear that the Spanish people want to hold on to. And it's a big deal even in the 19th century, even in the 20th century, even in the Spanish Civil War, it becomes an issue that cities want to hold on to their fueros, their charters that in some cases dated back to the Middle Ages. What's important about these charters? These charters, these fueros, what they tended to do is they tended to exempt cities from the control of noblemen, magnates, and warlords, all right, and to subject cities directly to the monarch himself. So it was a way for the monarch of the Asturias to kind of expand his power within the kingdom at the expense of the nobility, at the expense of wealthy landowners and magnates, while at the same time provide an incentive for urbanization, for the growth of towns, for the growth of the, the kind of commercial life that fuels town life in the Middle Ages. And so it's really a brilliant strategy. You see in the 9th and 10th and 11th centuries, the frontier between Christianity and Islam slowly and gradually moving south under demographic pressure, the pressure of the presura system and the pressure of the fueros, the charters of local rights that are granted. So the presura, the fueros, and the constant raiding, it leads to the growth in the confidence of the kingdom of the Asturias. Now, that shouldn't mislead us. That shouldn't mislead us. In the 10th century, in the 9th and 10th century, the Asturias was always inferior to the Umayyad state, and it was always paying tribute to the Umayyad state. All right, so keep that in mind. The kingdom of the Asturias, it's basically a weak client kingdom 
of the Umayyads. You don't have anything like religious crusading that's going on in this period. You don't have anything that resembles Reconquista. What you do have is kind of a, a steady and slow expansion of this particular Christian kingdom. Incidentally, it is in this era, it is in this era that we first start witnessing the, the importance of the pilgrimage to the shrine of St. James in Compostela. Remember, it was during the reign of Alfonso II, as we talked about last time, that the bones of St. James were discovered. It was in the reign of Alfonso II that the first basilica was built at Compostela. It was later on in the 10th century that we get the first lists of prominent pilgrims traveling from other parts of Europe to Compostela. And so we see a, an important religious site there within the kingdom of the Asturias. The politicization of the cult of St. James would come later. But just kind of keep it in the back of your mind. The, the religious cult of St. James is there. Now, we can kind of witness the, the newfound confidence of the kingdom of the Asturias in the reign of Alfonso III. Alfonso III called himself the king of León, Galicia, and the Asturias. And his reign was from 866 to 910, so late 9th, early 10th century. He won numerous victories against the Umayyads. These victories, when I say victories, I mean raids, right? Very successful raids. More importantly, much more importantly for him, he defeated the almost constant rebellions within his own kingdom, which established the monarchy on a much firmer footing. He also made a, a very important dynastic marriage. He married Jimena, who was the princess of Pamplona, and so that gave him peace on his frontier with the kingdom of Pamplona. Now, incidentally, in terms of name changes, the kingdom of Pamplona later on is going to become the kingdom of Navarre. That's the same thing. So just keep, don't, don't, get too, don't get too dazzled by all of these name changes. So Alfonso III, he calls himself king of Leon, king of Galicia, king of Asturias. He also calls himself something a little bit more ambitious. Alfonso III called himself Imperator Totius Hispaniae the emperor of all Spain, right? <laughs> That's a little bit ambitious. Why on earth would he call himself that? Was he delusional? No, no, he wasn't delusional. Alfonso III was perfectly aware of the fact that he was ruling in embattled, poor, weak, mountainous territory. He was perfectly aware of the fact that the Umayyads could have crushed him like a bug if they had really wanted to, you know, if they got too annoyed by his raids. There's really nothing stopping the Umayyads in this period from, from doing a number on Alfonso III. Why does he call himself Imperator Totius Hispaniae? In the reign of Alfonso III, what we have to understand is that this is not so much an expression of delusion about his political status, nor is it an expression of some kind of a wish to, to reconquer the Iberian Peninsula, because that was so far outside the realm of possibility in this period as to just not even be something that Alfonso III ever contemplated. Right? When he calls himself Imperator Totius Hispaniae, what he means is, I am ruling in continuity with the kings of the Visigoths and with the governors of the Romans who ruled Spain before me. Right? He's emphasizing historical continuity. Remember, Hispania was the name of the Roman province of Spain. And so what Alfonso III is claiming right, is he's claiming historical continuity with the Visigothic kings, and through the Visigothic kings, he's claiming historical continuity with Rome. Now, the reason why that's important, it's not so much because of Alfonso III having any political ambitions to drive the Muslims out of Spain. That just wasn't an option on the table in this period. It's more because Alfonso III was trying to claim the mantle of top dog among Christian monarchs within the Iberian Peninsula, kind of primus inter pares among Christian kings. And we'll see this is very much the battle among the Christian princes of the Iberian Peninsula 
before crusading enters into the picture, before we get crusading doctrine, crusading indulgences, and the practice of real religious war in the 12th and 13th centuries, we see among Christian kings claiming the mantle of supremacy from one another is really the priority, partly because the Muslims were too strong in this period. Now, unfortunately for Alfonso III, unfortunately for the emperor of all Spain, he dies having been totally removed from power by his sons. Uh, his sons rebelled against him and divided the kingdom. So Alfonso III dies in a, a kind of ignominious fashion. However, immediately after his death, the sons start fighting each other, as you may expect. Right? This results in the subsequent consolidation or reconsolidation of the kingdom under one of his sons, Fruella II. Fruella II reigned until 925. The nature of, of the political situation in this period, we should just emphasize, it, it's one in which the kingdom of the Asturias is probably the strongest, of these petty Christian principalities, but that's not saying much, right? That's not saying much compared to the power of the Umayyad Caliphate or the Umayyad Emirate in this period, which is soon to become a caliphate. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? We're, th we're throwing some bizarre names at you here. Here's what we mean by that. In 929, the ruler of the Umayyad state in Spain, Abd al-Rahman III, Abd al-Rahman III in 929 proclaimed that the Umayyad state in Spain, the Umayyad state of Al-Andalus, was no longer an emirate. It was now a caliphate. Now that really means something. What that means is Abd al-Rahman is claiming the mantle of sole successor of the Prophet Muhammad. That's what that means. Now, religiously, ideologically, that's a tremendous claim to make. And we should see this as a sign not only of the strength of the Umayyad state in Spain in the early 10th century, but it's also kind of a sign of um, a, a newfound disunity within the Islamic world. By the early 10th century, the Abbasids are experiencing a lot of trouble. The Abbasids were having trouble from the Turks. They're having trouble from uh, a newly founded Shiite caliphate in Egypt, a dynasty that we call the Fatimids. And so in the midst of all this chaos, the Umayyads in Spain decide, why the heck not, right? If there's more than one guy out there claiming to be the caliph, if there's more than one guy out there claiming to be the true successor of the prophet, we can claim that for ourselves. After all, we're descended from the Umayyads of Damascus. We're descended from Uthman of the Rashidun. We have just as great a claim as anyone else in the Islamic world to be the successors of the prophet. And so Abd al-Rahman in 929, he makes this tremendous proclamation that he is no longer just the emir of Spain, no longer just the emir of Cordova, but the caliph, the commander of the faithful, the successor of the prophet. Now, the apogee of the Umayyad state was still to come. All right? The high point of Umayyad power was still to come at this point, but what we end up seeing, in a certain sense, is that the, the apogee of Umayyad power, when it does come, it has a certain irony to it. Now remember, I, I, it's pretty clear at this point that if the Umayyads had ever really wanted to, they could really push the Christian kings around. And then it, it's not until we get to the end of the 10th century that we find an Islamic leader who's really willing to do that. And, and he, sure, he's able to push the Christian kings around. But as he does so, what we're going to see is that the, the apogee of Umayyad power at the end of the 10th century contains within itself the seeds for the destruction of the Umayyad state and with it, the destruction of Islamic unity in Spain. And here's how that works. 
The man that I'm referring to, the guy who probably realized more than any of his contemporaries the full military potential of the Umayyad state, was a guy whose uh, his birth name was Muhammad, but nobody in his adult life called him that. Uh, they called him by the Arabic name Al-Mansur, which means the victorious. However, he's most commonly known to history as Al-Manzor, which is the Spanish version of Al-Mansur, right? So Al-Manzor, as we may call him, uh, he was born in 938 in the caliphate of Cordoba. He came to Cordoba as a young man to study law. He studied law and literature at the great caliphal schools in Cordoba. He was an extraordinarily intelligent man, right? And, and he used his extraordinary intelligence to good ends. Uh, he became a, an incredibly influential young lawyer in Cordoba. He developed tremendous influence within the caliphal family, right, within the dynastic family there. He developed particular influence over uh, certain members of the caliphal family, including Sub, who was the mother of Hisham II, right? So through his friendship with basically the queen mother of Hisham II, who was a juvenile caliph, he became the, the caliph of Cordoba in 976, this figure of Almanzor becomes basically the guy who's running the show in the Umayyad Caliphate. Now, his, his strategy for running the show is this. All right? He says to Sub, right, the, the mother of Hisham II, he says, look, Hisham II, the Khalif, he's only 12 years old. He can't really rule. Right? You need somebody who's mature enough to rule. And by the 970s, Almanzor was certainly old enough and mature enough to rule. He was approaching 40 years old. He's approaching kind of the prime of his life. And he says, you know what? Why don't we take Hisham II and put him in a safe place? <laughs> we'll, we'll put him in a place where, where people can't bother him all the time. <laughs> and his mother agrees, right? So what Almanzor then does is he builds a palace. Over the course of a couple of years, he, he builds a palace at a place called Al-Madina Az-Zahira, which means uh, kind of, it, it's kind of, it kind of means the flourishing city or something like that in Arabic. But it, it's outside of Cordova in a kind of isolated place. He builds an elaborate palace there and puts the young caliph in it, and the young caliph gets to stay there for the rest of his life. So the caliph basically becomes a prisoner of his right-hand man, Al-Manzur. Al-Manzur has himself named Hajib of the kingdom. Now, what is a Hajib? A Hajib is a lot like a vizier. I'm sure a vizier is a term that's maybe more familiar to everyone. What's a vizier, a grand vizier? A grand vizier of an Islamic state is basically, he's basically the guy who's actually doing the nuts and bolts business of ruling the kingdom. He's the right-hand man of the sultan or the caliph, and he's the guy who's really running the show politically. And that's what's going on with Almanzor. By around 980 or so, it's pretty clear that Almanzor is, is the de facto ruler of Umayyad Spain and that the caliph is purely a figurehead. Now, if the caliph becomes purely a figurehead, is it still important to have the caliph around? Yes, it absolutely is. Because without the caliph, Almanzor has no legitimacy. With the caliph, Almanzor has all the legitimacy in the world. Remember, the caliph is the successor of the prophet. The caliph, for all intents and purposes, is the prophet personified in life, in the flesh. And so if the khalif, the caliph, says, this guy's my right-hand man, do whatever he says, all right? <laughs> then everybody has to do whatever he says. If the khalif is out of the picture or, or somehow, right, as long as he's still alive and he's safely tucked away somewhere and you can make it appear that he's condoning what's going on, then it has legitimacy. Right? And there's no real legal way to oppose it. 
if, on the other hand, the caliph is killed or removed or, or done away with, then you have a serious problem. Then Almanzar has no legitimacy. Now, he was wise and shrewd enough to realize that. So throughout Almanzor's life, he kept the caliph around, kept the caliph in captivity. What this does, though, is it inevitably weakens the position of the caliph. Now, what does Almanzor use his immense power to do? Well, in the first place, he uses his immense power to crush all potential rivals within the Islamic State of Spain, right? Within the Umayyad Caliphate of Cordoba, within Islamic Andalus, he spends about three years between 978 and 981 defeating in battle, crushing, executing, assassinating, or just altogether demolishing anyone who opposes him. So by 981, Almanzor is in a state of uncontested supremacy within the Umayyad Caliphate. And now here is where he begins to try to realize the military potential of the Islamic State versus his much weaker Christian adversaries. Beginning in 981 and continuing until his death in 1002, Almanzor launched a series of campaigns against the Christian kingdoms, a total of 57 military campaigns in that roughly 20-year period. These campaigns were extremely successful. He sacked Barcelona in 985. He sacked the city of Leon in 988. And most interestingly, he sacked Santiago de Compostela in 997. Now, this is where it really gets interesting. Almanzor is really flexing his muscles, marching through the Asturias all the way to the northeastern corner of the Iberian Peninsula to get to Santiago. And when he gets there, he has his men go into the shrine of St. James and do something interesting. Almanzor's men were given very specific instructions. Do not desecrate the body of the saint. Do not touch the Holy Eucharist or any relics or holy objects. Almanzor said, I want one thing. I want one thing from Santiago de Compostela. I want the bells. Those Christian bells. Muslims don't use bells, right? Those Christian bells, they drive me crazy. I want those bells. So, you know, partly as a gesture of, of religious propaganda, partly as a, just a kind of in-your-face gesture, Almanzor had the bells removed from Santiago de Compostela and brought to Córdoba, where they were melted down and made into lanterns for the great mosque of Córdoba. This is how he's flexing his muscles in 997. Almanzor was fully aware of the importance of the Shrine of Santiago, and it was because of his awareness of its importance that he e expresses both respect for the shrine in his refusal to desecrate the relics, and also his contempt in his theft of the bells. Now, it's interesting. During the course of his campaigns against the Christian principalities in the north, Almanzor makes another fateful decision, which is he takes a, a Christian bride and adds her to his harem. His Christian bride is one of the princesses of Navarre. Now, the reason why this is a fateful decision is because his union with this Christian woman would bring him a child, a child whom he named Abd al-Rahman, right? Great Umayyad name. However, the child never went by that name, really, in historical sources, because the Spaniards always referred to him as little Sancho, Sanchuelo, Sanchuelo, which was Arabicized as Shanjul, right? So you see him pop up in Arabic chronicles as, as Shanjul. It's also a way of Arabic chroniclers showing contempt for him by calling him Shanjul instead of calling him Abd al-Rahman, which is a much more prestigious name and evokes the greatest names in Umayyad history, right? So this figure of Shanjul would play a fateful role in the ultimate downfall of the Umayyad Caliphate. Now here's how that happens. At the time of Almanzor's death in 1002, 
a paradoxical state of affairs exists. It's a state of affairs in which, as far as the politics of the Iberian Peninsula are concerned, the caliphate of Cordova has never been stronger, but the caliph himself has never been weaker. Let that kind of sink in for a moment. The state itself has never been stronger, but the figure of the caliph has never been weaker. And so what the, in terms of the succession, what's most important is who succeeds as vizier, as hajib, who succeeds al-manzur as the guy who's running the show. Now, it's an interesting situation because the guy who succeeds him is one of al-manzur's older sons named Abd al-Malik. Abd al-Malik only lives for six more years. He dies in 1008. And when he dies in 1008, who comes in and takes his place? Shanjul, Sanchuelo, little Sancho, right? Now, little Sancho, for one reason or another, maybe because of his overweening ambition, maybe because of uh, his simple lack of familiarity with the traditions of the Umayyad Caliphate, Sanchuelo doesn't have the same kind of respect for the person of the Khalif that his father did. Sanchuelo is not old enough to remember a time when the Umayyad Khalif of Cordoba wielded any political power. And so Sanchuelo begins to think to himself, what would happen if we just got rid of the caliph? What would happen if we just had me be the caliph? <laughs> right? Sounds good to me. And so in 1008, Sanchuelo announces that he has become the successor to the caliph. And when the current caliph dies, he, Sanchuelo, will succeed him. This sets off an immediate civil war. The citizens of Cordoba instantly rebel. This touches off a civil war that lasts for a long time. It lasts from 1008 all the way down to 1031. And it's a civil war that tears apart the Umayyad Caliphate. So from its position of absolute supremacy in the Iberian Peninsula, we see the Umayyad Caliphate completely rip itself apart by 1031. And by 1031, the Umayyad Caliphate no longer exists. Now, what replaces it? What replaces the Umayyad Caliphate of Cordova in Islamic Spain? Basically, what, what replaces it is a multitude of tiny independent kingdoms, a multitude of tiny, weak, embattled kingdoms who are at war with one another more often than they're at war with the Christians. Right? This is sounding familiar. We're going to see the replacement of the caliphate by these tiny kingdoms is going to lead to a kind of a turning of the tables in the 11th century where for at least a brief window in the 11th century, the kingdom of Leon, also known as the kingdom of the Asturias, also known as Castile, right, where that kingdom becomes the most powerful entity in the Iberian Peninsula. Now, just so you know, another a term to be aware of in all of this is the term taifa. Taifa, is, if you run into it in, in sources, it's simply the name for these little kingdoms. They're called taifas, these little Islamic principalities that result from the dissolution of the Umayyad Caliphate of Cordova. So the era of the taifa kingdoms, it's a very interesting one for Spain, both Christian and Islamic Spain. The era of the taifas lasts from 1031 down to 1086. And in this era, we see the kings of, of Leon, slash Asturias, slash Castile, slash Galicia, really able to assert themselves and flex their muscles and make some big gains against Islamic Spain. So what we see, for example, is a reign like that of Ferdinand I. Ferdinand I is a very interesting figure. He became the Count of Castile in 1029. He became the King of Leon in 1037 via a little coup d'etat where he overthrew his brother-in-law. And in 1056, Ferdinand I was able to proclaim himself 
Imperator Totius Hispaniae, right? Emperor of all Spain. Only he actually meant it, right? When Ferdinand I calls himself Emperor of all Spain, he means it in a very different sense than Alfonso III had done hundreds of years earlier, right? Alfonso III was simply emphasizing historical continuity with Roman predecessors and Visigothic predecessors. When Ferdinand I calls himself the Emperor of all Spain, he actually means, I am top dog in the Iberian Peninsula. Okay, so it's, it's an interesting turning of the tables, an interesting shift. After proclaiming himself Emperor of all Spain in 1056, Ferdinand I launches a series of wars against the Taifa kingdoms that's overwhelmingly successful. In 1060, he raided Saragossa. In 1062, he raided Toledo, which is very, very significant. Toledo, as you, as you well know, had been the ancient Visigothic capital of Spain. Toledo still, in the 11th century, had a very large Christian community and a bishop and all of that. The bishops tended to be consecrated in Leon and then sent down to Toledo from the kingdom of Leon. So for the king of Leon to suddenly show up with an army outside of Toledo and raid the area and exact tribute from the emir of the Taifa, that, that's a big deal, right? It, it, it emboldens the Christians of Toledo, and it certainly emboldens the kingdom of Leon. In 1063, Ferdinand, he engaged in more raiding, right? These raids are expressions of dominance. He raided as far as Seville in 1063. By 1065, he was able to raid Valencia. What are these raids all about? He's exacting tribute. He's expressing supremacy over the Taifas. But perhaps even more importantly, Ferdinand I, through these raids deep into the heart of Islamic Spain, he's expressing his supremacy over the other Christian princes in the north of Iberia. In other words, he's saying to all the Islamic taifa kings, you ally yourselves with me. You pay tribute to me. You become clients of me. Not with the king of Aragon, not with the king of Navarre, not with the lords of Catalonia, not anyone else. You pay tribute to me. So we see in the middle of the 11th century, clearly the kingdom of Leon is, is the strongest among all of these Christian kingdoms. Now, it's in the reign of Ferdinand I's successor, though, that we see the tables turn yet again. And we see Islamic Spain reunified and uh, able to assert itself again. Alfonso VI, the successor of Ferdinand I, he's an interesting figure. Alfonso VI is somebody that you guys probably know. Alfonso VI uh, shows up in El Cid. You know, yeah, Elsa, that's familiar to us, Charlton Heston, brilliant. Now, uh, just so you know, the, the movie of Elsa with Charlton Heston is obviously a spectacular movie, um, great production values, they really knew how to make movies back then, but f don't buy the historicity of it, okay? <laughs> now, for, for several reasons. In the first place, the poem of Elsa, which the movie is supposedly based on, the poem of Elsa was written about a century after the events that it describes. And so the poem of El Cid itself, it really doesn't give us the milieu of the 11th century at all. The poem of El Cid, it's, it's very much ahistorical in the sense that the spirit of the poem is the spirit of the 12th century, not the spirit of the 11th century. Now, what do I mean by that? Remember, the 11th century, the era of the Taifa kingdoms, this is a time when these, these Christian kings, you know, the kings of Castile, the kings of Leon, Galicia, the, the kings of uh, Navarre, Aragon, etc., they tended to like to wage war with one another, and they were more concerned with their rivalry with one another than they were with any idea of religious reconquest. They also tended to form varying alliances and friendships 
with the emirs of the different taifas, right? friendships that were sealed through the payment of tribute. Usually it was the, the Islamic emirs in this period who were paying the tribute because they were in a subordinate position. Right? But the point is that the 11th century is not really a time where you have unified Christian Spain versus unified Islamic Spain. That is more how it was in the 12th century. And so that's kind of the spirit of the poem of El Cid. Uh, the movie version of El Cid, it, it's neither. Right? The movie version of El Cid, it's very much a 20th century thing where all of this religious fundamentalism is silly. Why can't we just get past these religious differences and realize that what really unites us is nationalism and uh, what, what really unites us is loyalty to Spain and to humanity. I mean, that, that's, that's really what the movie is all about. And if only we could be more mature and realize that religion is silly, then, you know, we'd be okay. I don't know. That, that, that's, that's basically my take on the movie. The movie's still great. It's obviously awesome. But anyway... So Alfonso VI, right, he's a historical figure that we're, we're somewhat familiar with. He's one of these celebrity historical figures. He was the subject, even in his own time, of romantic tales, you know, chivalric poems, romances, that sort of thing. He became the King of Leon in 1065, of Castile in 1072, and he died in 1109. So he had a very long reigns over his various kingdoms. Now, unfortunately for Alfonso VI, what cannot be doubted is that it's in his reign, really, that the tide turns against Castile and Leon, and it turns against the Christian kingdoms. And the reason is because of an albeit brief recovery of Islamic unity. Now, how did that happen? Basically, the kings of the Taifas decided in the 1080s that they were sick and tired of being kicked around by the kings of Leon and Castile. And so they invited into Spain the chieftain of a great African kingdom, right? and the chieftain's name was Yusuf ibn Tashfin. He was lord of an African Islamic kingdom north, in northwestern Africa that is called the kingdom of the Almoravids. Now, the, the name Almoravid in Arabic, it's Al-Murabitun, which means those who are ready or those who are prepared, right? and it signifies those who are ready for jihad. Right? So the, the kingdom of the Almoravids in the northwest of Africa, uh, we can see it as being animated by the, the personal spirituality of Yusuf ibn Tashfin, which is a spirituality of purification so that you could be ready for jihad. Right? So Yusuf ibn Tashfin, when he's invited to kind of take over Islamic Spain in the 1080s, he does, and of course the Taifa kings live to regret it because their days of independence are utterly destroyed. Yusuf ibn Tashfin invades. He deposes the majority of the Taifa emirs and sends them into exile, takes over virtually all of Islamic Spain, and in 1087 is able to unify Islamic Spain to go wage war against the king of Castile, Alfonso VI. This leads to the infamous battle that the Spaniards call the Battle of Sagrajas and the Arabs call the Battle of Azzalaka, the Battle of the Slippery Ground. And the ground was so slippery because of all the Christian blood that was spilled that day. It was an utter slaughter of Alfonso VI's army. So the age of the Almoravids then begins in the 1080s. This is an age in which the Christians are, are very much back on the defensive again, only to find that the Almoravid, Almoravid supremacy in Spain is, is relatively short-lived. Almoravid supremacy in Spain only lasts until 1147 or so. And it's because the Almoravids were themselves conquered by another Muslim power from Africa called the Almohads. Now, the Almohads are sort of the, the definition of religious fundamentalists, as we might call them. When I say religious fundamentalists, I don't necessarily mean that in a pejorative sense. 
I mean, what the Almohads were all about is they were all about getting back to what was most fundamental and pure about Islam. All right? And what was most pure about Islam for the Almohads was the doctrine of divine unity, the doctrine that God is one. And that's really what Almohad means. They are called the, the Al-Mawahidun in Arabic, and it's, it's kind of Latinized as Almohads. What that means is those who respect the doctrine of divine unity, the oneness of God. Okay. The Almohads, under the leadership of their charismatic leader, uh, Ibn Tumar, they captured Marrakesh in Africa in 1147. In that same year, they invaded Spain and conquered the Almoravids. But guess what? A lot had changed in Christian Europe by 1147. By the time you get to 1147, crusading spirituality had completely taken over in Western Europe. 1147 is precisely the year that Christian crusaders, on their way to Palestine, on their way in ships from England, they left from Portsmouth in 1147 to go join the Second Crusade in Palestine. They stopped on the way at Lisbon and reconquered Lisbon. So the reconquest of Lisbon is one of the few successful episodes in the train wreck of the Second Crusade. Right? But keep in mind, by, by this point, as far as Western Europe has concerned, so much has changed. And the Almohads, that is, they have no idea what they're biting off when they invade Spain in the middle of the 12th century. By this point, the Christian kings of Spain are united against what they perceive as an existential threat from the fundamentalist Almohads. And uniting them is precisely their devotion to St. James. By the middle of the 12th century, St. James has been transformed from St. James the Apostle, Bishop of Jerusalem. He's been transformed into St. James the Moor Slayer, St. James Matamoros, St. James who kills Muslims. That's what that means. And they weren't fooling around. They felt that under the patronage of St. James, they could absolutely not only defend themselves against the Almohads, but perhaps even conquer Almohad Spain. We're reaching the absolute height of the crusading movement in Europe. Now, if the crusading movement within Western Europe has a culmination, the culmination is, is certainly in the pontificate of Innocent III. Innocent III's reign was 1198 to 1216. Although Innocent III, he, the crusades that he launched to the Middle East tended to be train wrecks. The Fourth Crusade, the Fifth Crusade, very sad stories, train wrecks, things don't go so well on these crusades. Where Innocent III is much successful launching crusades is in Europe. Innocent III, of course, was the author of the crusade against the Albigensians in the south of France, which ends up being highly successful. And he was also unbeknownst to most people who have a casual acquaintance with Innocent III, he was the author of the Great Crusade to Spain in 1212. Now this crusade united the kings of Castile, of Navarre, and of Aragon against the Almohads. And uh, they penetrated deep into the south of Spain, deep into the heart of Islamic territory. And the, a great decisive battle was fought at a place called Las Navas de Tolosa in 1212. And the armies of the Almohads were absolutely shattered in this period. From this point on, from this point on, the fate of Islamic Spain was sealed. Under the influence of the crusading spirit, under the unification brought about by the devotion to the cult of St. James, the Christian kings from this point, from 1212 on, they're, they're basically able to mop up Islamic Spain at their leisure. The Almohads left Spain for Africa in 1228. They were replaced by a, a dynasty called the Nazrids, who took power in 1235. And the, the history of the Nazrid dynasty is like a sad reality show. Uh, 
Nazareth emirs, not only are they losing all their cities, I mean, Cordova was captured uh, by the King of Castile in 1236, Seville was captured by the King of Castile in 1248, uh, a whole bunch of other cities in the south of Spain, Jaén, right, all, all of these important cities are captured by the Christians in the 13th century as they're mopping up the gains of Las Navas de Tolosa. But the Nazareths, they, they can't even maintain supremacy within their little emirate. They keep assassinating each other, and, you know, Nazareth emirs, they tend to turn up, you know, floating face down in the swimming pool or something like that. I mean, it, it is. It's like a bad reality show. But from this point forward, Islamic Spain, despite the fact that it drags on until 1492, and everyone knows that Islamic Spain drags on until 1492, what you have to realize is that after this period in the middle of the 13th century, Islamic Spain is nothing but a tiny remnant of its former self. It's a, it, politically and militarily, it's an incredibly weak state. It's a client kingdom of Castile. They're paying tribute, paying taxes to Castile. They could basically be mopped up at any time. It's a rump state. It, it, it's a, a mere shadow of what used to be Islamic Spain. Now this is where, just kind of as a side note, historically speaking, it's dangerous to be deceived by culture. Now what do I mean by that? Uh, somebody pointed out that the Visigoths, uh, last time in, in private conversation after my talk, somebody pointed out the weakness of the Visigothic state was evidenced uh, in the fact that the Visigoths left behind very little to no architecture in Spain. Now it is true that the Visigothic state was weak and short-lived, and it is true that they left behind little to no architecture. But that's kind of a dangerous correlation to make as a historian, because oftentimes it's the strongest states that leave behind little to no architecture. Or I think of Byzantium under Basil II. They weren't building very much. There wasn't much culture going on under Basil II. And yet this is a time of, of a, a tremendous restoration politically and militarily for Byzantium. While on the other hand, it's often the weakest states where you have the greatest cultural achievements going on. Think of the Italian city-states during the Renaissance. Small, weak, divided, at war with one another. Uh, these weren't great empires, and yet you have all kinds of culture going on there. Same thing with Islamic Spain after Las Navas de Tolosa. It's under the Nazareths that you have tremendous cultural achievements, including um, tremendous monuments of architecture, the Alhambra, uh, all of the, these wonderful things in the south of Spain that you can still go and see. They were built not at a time of political strength for Islamic Spain, but at a time of tremendous weakness. Now, the crusading spirit that animated this tremendous effort of reconquest in the 13th century was a crusading spirit that, that Isabel and Ferdinand in the 15th century were definitely the self-conscious imitators of. Isabel and Ferdinand definitely saw themselves in a very clear and self-conscious way as crusaders. And it's important to note this is what motivates their final decision to simply get rid of the Islamic Emirate of Granada and wipe away the last remnant of Islamic Spain. This is what motivates their desire to explore the new world. Isabel was motivated by the desire to find potential new allies against the Ottoman Turks and new sources of wealth to fund crusading. So the crusading spirit, in a very real sense, the cult of St. James, which animates the peculiar crusading spirit of Spain, we see it operative with tremendous, tremendous implications later on in the early modern period with the discovery of the new world and uh, really our, our entry onto a new age in human history in the early modern period. That's all. I think we're out of time. Thank you. Deacon Sabatino. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire. Thank you very much. And thank you for returning to the Institute. We hope you'll come back again. We are going to take a short break. When did the Renaissance come to Spain? 
Oh boy, uh, no, that's that's a very good question. Renaissance humanism, it's a tremendously influential mode of approach to everything, right? That, that obviously sweeps Europe by storm, and certainly we can see the 16th century in Spain as in, in many ways a triumph of, of Renaissance culture there, and it, it coincides with the ability of the Spanish monarchs to patronize culture due to the discovery of the new world and, and the new revenue streams that they had at that point in the early modern period. When do you have the first examples of Renaissance culture in Spain? Uh, I wouldn't be an expert on that so much, but certainly by the 16th century, by, by the time you get to what the Spaniards call the Siglo de Oro, you know, the golden century of Spanish history in the 16th century, you certainly have the ability of the monarchy to patronize culture at a tremendous rate. And that's really what people are thinking of when they talk about the Spanish Renaissance. Wonderful lecture as always, uh, Brendan, and a great pronunciation of all the, uh, the Spanish <laughs> names, by the way. Um, could you clarify a little bit more when the battle cry of Santiago Matamoros was first used and what were the key battles or periods of time in all that history where Santiago was most important? Okay, great. The, um, the term Santiago Matamoros, it first appears, it starts cropping up in the middle of the 12th century in chronicles that are talking about earlier events. And so this is the interesting thing. We have battles way back in the ninth century, earlier in the history of Christian Spain, earlier in the history of the Asturias, that are given as examples of St. James's intercession on behalf of the Christians against the Muslims. The problem is that there was no such cult of Santiago Matamoros in that particular sense. St. James as a patron of Christian war against Islam in the ninth century. It just wasn't a ninth century thing. So basically, it's, it's a complex issue. It's the, the evolution of the cult of St. James into the cult of St. James Matamoros. It seems to coincide with crusading spirituality sweeping over Spain in the 12th century. You know, they take it in the Chronicles, and they read it back into earlier periods in Spanish history in, a, in an ahistorical way. By the time you get to Las Navas de Tolosa, you know, they would be self-consciously invoking the patronage of, of Santiago Matamoros and... Uh, you know, the, the great pass of the overthrow of the infidel dogs is named, <laughs> you know, for what happens at Las Navas de Tolosa. But by that point, you have just a very different culture there. Dr. McGuire, uh, what specifically makes the Spanish Crusades different from all the other previous types of fighting in Spain? Uh, okay, very, very good question. What makes crusading different from other types of warfare, right? Crusade historians today have, have kind of settled on a definition of crusading that kind of treats the geographical arena of the crusading as basically irrelevant to the question of is this a crusade or not, right? The, the key question that you're asking when you're asking is this a crusade or not is <clears throat> whether or not there's a, a papally issued indulgence for participation in the fighting. Now, as crusading starts to be moved into other arenas other than Palestine, you have to come up with new criteria for gaining the indulgence. And, and this is something that people don't really understand about crusading, is that it's not just papally sanctioned violence where the Pope says, I'll give you spiritual rewards for killing people. That's not what crusading is. The spiritual rewards associated with crusading were actually the, the traditional spiritual rewards associated with pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the Holy Sepulchre. Right. And so it was the act of pilgrimage to the Holy Sepulchre that would gain one the full indulgence, etc. And the, the fighting, the, the military aspects of it, in a certain sense, were, were sort of incidental. The First Crusade can be seen as, as a kind of an armed pilgrimage, for example. 
when you get into the 13th century and you start having crusading in the south of France or crusading in Spain, right? obviously in Spain you could simply attach the indulgence to taking a trip to Santiago. Uh, but by that point, Innocent III had already come up with better ideas. And so what he would do is <clears throat> he would issue indulgences for um, spending a certain number of days in the field in the fighting season. And so now you have something that, that sounds a lot more like getting an indulgence for participating in a military campaign. And uh, so that's what's going on, say, at Las Navas de Tolosa. The indulgence is given in exchange for participating in, in a campaign. That, that was what was going on in the south of France. And the same thing is going on in Italy at the time. And that's how you distinguish whether it's a crusade from, from other things. Dr. McGuire, we have uh, Lucas writing in online who asks, how likely do you think it is that modern <coughs> Muslims will try to reconquer Spain since it was once controlled by them? Oh, that, that's a really good question. But I, I think... Um, I would answer it very, very carefully. I think it's all too easy. It's all too easy for people in the West to see Islamic fundamentalists and crazy lunatics as being the sole voice of Islam in the modern world. And they're not. I mean, the Islamic world in modernity is, is just as diverse as the Christian world in modernity. And so I, I would be very careful about generalizing about a desire of Muslims as such to, to come and, and reconquer Spain. But if anything, I, I think what one has to look out for over the next 50, 60, 70 years in Spain, just like in the rest of Europe, is a, a demographic collapse of the Christian population, while at the same time you have a demographic explosion of populations of, of Islamic immigrants. When you get a, a majority Islamic population in Western Europe, then you know that you're going to start seeing Islamic law cropping up because we already see that in Western Europe. And, and so if there's something to watch out for in Spain, it would be that. But the process isn't as far advanced there as it is, say, in France or in England. And of the 900-1000 period um, in Islam, we have a shift in philosophies from the Mutazilite to Asherite. Mm -hmm. uh, does that have any bearing on what, what's going on with Spain at all? Or that's a really good question. I'd say the, the dispute between Mutazilites and Asherites and things like that, when, when they're disputing about things like whether the Quran is created and stuff like that, that's more confined to universities. It's not as much uh, deployable as a political ideology, at least in this arena in Spain. You do see the, the, the one kind of exception is with the Almohads, because with the Almohads you see them taking a very distinct position in Islamic theology on divine unity and that being kind of their rallying cry for the conquest of Almoravid Africa and then for the conquest of Almoravid Spain. That debate about the divine unity of God within Islam, that's a fierce debate in the Middle Ages, whether God has attributes, for example. If God is truly one, then can you also say that God has goodness and justice? And can you say that God is green and blue and red? And does he have arms? Like it, 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 it gets kind of you know, interesting when you, when you get into it. But basically, for the Almohads, they emphasized in a really radical way the kind of Parmenidean oneness of God. God is, is one. And so you can't talk about attributes and things like that. It's the oneness of God. Uh, and it, it does become kind of a political and military rallying cry. Is the archive of Seville a good source of uh, materials for the time for uh, research on Isabel and Ferdinand? It's, it's a tremendous resource. During the um, time they expelled the Moors and the Jews, um, yeah, and no, those they, who stayed yeah. had to be converted. Otherwise they had to leave or they die if they don't convert. 
Okay. What we're discussing now is the, the expulsion of the Jews in 1492 from Castile by Queen Isabella. You know, quite right, Jews who were not baptized were expelled in 1492, absolutely. There's kind of a, a religious backdrop to that, though, which is often missed. If you read the documents associated with the expulsion of the Jews from Castile, it's not really about socioeconomic issues, right? nor does it have anything to do with nationalism, nor does it have anything to do with racism or, or modern stuff like that. What it is all about is it's all about the purity of the practice of Catholicism within Castile and uh, Isabel's concern that Jewish converts in the presence of unconverted Jewish brethren might be still engaging in Jewish practices and might even be doing things like seeking holy orders when they didn't believe in the Eucharist and and things like that. And so what you see expressed in in the documents related to the expulsion of the Jews is a religious motive having to do with the integrity of the practice of Christianity within Castile, right? It it wasn't rooted in anything modern or anything racial or or something like that, much later ideas that come to dominate in, in Western Europe. But the Archive of Seville kind of answered the first part of the question. It's a tremendous resource, and uh, those archives only recently have been opened and studied, and they're especially useful for the early modern period because that's where you have the most material. Right? And this is why the, the black legend, for example, the black legend of the Spanish Inquisition was debunked by, largely by secular historians and, and British historians relatively recently, only in the past 20 years or so. so. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire. Should we have him back again? Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.